Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello. Welcome to the Game Football Podcast (laughs) from The Times. Today we will be doing a special commemorative show, which will be 60 minutes of silence. Not because we want to pay our respects to emotional Liverpool fans, but because I thought that would be better than an hour of Alison Rudd and Tony Cascarino wittering on about Jurgen Klopp's departure. I'm only joking, everybody! laughing even made Gregor laugh that's wonderful <laughs> no this show of the game podcast will be packed with energy debate and analysis as we talk Marcus Rashford Jao Pedro George Elakobi. yeah and we might have to mention Liverpool's manager too joining me Tom Clark as I've mentioned it's everyone's favourite Liverpool fans Alison Rudd and Tony Cascarino and a former footballer who when his emotional departure from crew Alexandra was announced in January 2014 <laughs> the club website paid this touching tribute to his oh, efforts Everyone at Crew Alexandra wishes him well for his future career. <laughs> Gregor Robertson, I can uh, only hope that you never, ever leave us. Please don't ever leave us. I Tony? hope when I do this, you say something <laughs> a bit nicer than that. I, 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 I might manage to, you know, work up some kind of more emotional tribute than that. Tony, any emotional farewells in your career? Uh, any any fans saying, please don't leave us, Tony? Or was it the opposite, generally? Uh, no, there's a couple of, yeah... Get him out. Get him out as fast as you can. <laughs> I mean, Celtic would jump ahead of that queue. Um, yeah, I remember leaving. I'll tell you a quick little story on the one of the funniest things. It was with Charlie Nicholas. I, I'd gone into a meeting and Tommy Boyd was agreed to do a swap with me from Chelsea. And we were playing Rangers on the Saturday. And um, as I'm in the offices, I bump into Charlie. And he says, what are you doing with your tickets on Saturday? I said, well, I don't think I'll be here. I think I'm, it looks like I'm on. It's Wednesday and I think it's, it's on for me to go uh, to Chelsea. And he said, uh, can you buy, can I buy your 20 for the Rangers game? Mm. I said, well, yeah, I'll go. So I went in the office, I bought the tickets, um, gave them to Charlie Nicholas. He said, I'm just going to get my money in my car. And then didn't think much about it. Got chatting to a few people. And was, Where's Charlie? Never saw him for four years. <laughs> Did you Never get your money him. in the Bumped end? Bumped into him at Sky. Did you get oh, money? big man! <laughs> your ticket money! <laughs> That's what I, that was my farewell itself. There you go. <laughs> Got fleeced out of 20 tickets to a big derby game. Well, uh, hopefully, Jurgen Klopp will have, you know, won't get fleeced. I'm sure he'll do quite well out of his farewell from Liverpool. But we do have to start with one of the biggest stories of the season. Uh, and a genuine shocker of a story, I've got to say, on the editing floor on Friday... Normally we have a mm. little hint. Sometimes our brilliant team of reporters tend to have a little rumour here and there, a little murmur. But no, genuinely, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, Jurgen Klopp is leaving Liverpool. But it's Monday now, and many, many words have been spoken. Many words have been written. So I'm only going to give you all three each to sum up Jurgen Klopp. And Gregor, you can set the standard, because you are actually do as you're told of them, like these, these two, who definitely, <laughs> definitely won't. Three words to sum up Jurgen Klopp's time at Liverpool. Big toothy grin. Big toothy grin. I like it. Mine is moaning referee hater. (laughs) So we're just getting in some early balance before I come to you two. Alison? Passionate. Yes. Intelligent. Impatient. 
Impatient. I like that one. Very good. Tony? I loved him. <laughs> there we go. I'm glad I finished with you. Um, but all, all, seri- all seriousness, this was an absolute shocker, wasn't it? It's such a shocker that, in all honesty, I still think it's a bit of a joke, a hoax. Yeah. I'm not sure it's real. Yeah. Well, Paul Joyce is obviously Mr. Liverpool when it comes to covering these big stories. And lots of Liverpool fans, if you ever go on his social media... The replies to Paul Joyce posting stories about Liverpool are quite frankly remarkable. Mm. And the ones to this one when Paul Joyce put up oh shocking news, Jurgen Klopp to, to leave Liverpool at the end of the season, all the replies instantly were, He's been hacked. Joycey, please tell me you've been <laughs> hacked. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. So reliant are they on Paul Joyce for the biggest news. But I wanted to move on because I do think that by now Monday we're already talking about it. We were instantly talking about it on Friday. Who's next? Who's going to replace him? Alison, I'm going to come to you first because it's only fair that you go for the most obvious choice, the one that all Liverpool fans want. Well, the the reason I'm not in tears as we speak, although I might I might be at some point in the podcast, but is that before we knew that Klopp was going, he he has actually hinted that he might be. You say it's a big shock, but um, when they played Crystal Palace, he's. And you know Roy Hodgson is seventy six, and is, and and he said, "Well, I won't be going for that long." And if you start talking like that, it implies that you are thinking about how long you will be a manager for. So, yes, I wasn't expecting him to say what he said, but I mean, I d- I sort of got the impression that it wasn't going to last too much longer, and the rise of Alonso has always been a. I've always been a big fan and I'm absolutely delighted that his managerial career is stunning. I, that, that has been rumbling in my head that, well, OK, it's OK, you know, when Klopp decides to go, because he was always going to decide to go, he was never going to be sacked. It, that, that, he, you know, how lucky are we that he'll be there in the wings looking like this perfect fit because he was an adored player for Liverpool. I mean, there aren't many songs... I sing at home with a player's name in them, but <laughs> but Alonso's name is one of them. Here's me worried uh, about you wittering on about Jurgen Klopp, and actually, <laughs> you've already moved, I've moved on. on. <laughs> already moved on. Did you wow. know that women do? To Shabby so Alonso. When, 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 <laughs> when, I know. When long term <laughs> relationships end, the, it's the men who struggle. Yeah. And I, they just can't cope. Mm. You know, they don't know how the washing machine works. Oh my God, she's oh. left me. That sort oh, of thing. And they, and they look immediately for a replacement, whether they're divorced to or the widowed. washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> but women, women are much more pragmatic when uh, intense, intense or long-term relationships end. They emotionally ruthless cope. is probably. <laughs> or they, you know, we're going off piece here a little bit. <laughs> we are going off piece. <laughs> no, but it's but it's that might explain why I'm not. I'm I'm optimistic about the future, and I'm very glad you haven't asked me to sing the Alonso 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 song. Well, it's you've given us lovely. a hint there, and that'll well, be a Stevie Highway song. If you... Well, that's in the main song, isn't it? Yeah. Fields of Anfield Road. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, they're off. Quick, come back to the football. <laughs> uh, but on on Alonso, on the footballing point, um, to compare him to you know another Spanish cultured midfielder who stepped into management, Mikel Arteta. Very early in his career, Alonso Arteta is someone that on this podcast you have been a little critical of before in terms of the experience levels and things. Is that not a worry with Alonso for Liverpool? Because it's a big, you know, in, in light of kind of Arteta, I know there was Emery in between, but taking on a big club who's been through a period of big manager like Arsene Wenger being in charge, is that not a slight worry for Well, you? yeah, it's a worry. I mean, for whoever takes over, you've got the 
poison chalice thing. You've got the, well, you'd like there to be a gap before you take over because you're not, it's unlikely you're going to exceed what Klopp achieved or have a bigger impact with the fans and the media. It's going to be tricky, but so you have to weigh everything up. And, and the fact that Alonso understands the club and he has a proper connection and passion for the club, a uh, highly, highly respected player with um, not, not just not just talented, but intelligent with it. I don't recall him ever saying anything that wasn't, you know, spot on. Mm. He's, 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 he's got that serious element of integrity, intelligence. You sort of feel like if he did decide to take it, if it was offered to him, he would think through all this. He would think about, it's going to be tough following in Klopp's shoes. How would I do that? What would I need? I feel he's got a grown-up approach and intelligence to do that. Um, yes, it would be. It would the whole the whole the whole succession idea. I wasn't expecting it to be this summer. I was expecting it to be in two, two years time or three years time. So yes, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't disagree that that there are elements of risk to it. But I don't see an interim manager, someone coming in where everyone knows the real story that in a couple of years time it will be Alonso. That I don't think that works for the club either. That just brings mm. them down. On that point about inexperience, let's say if it had been a year ago and Alonso's even more inexperienced, is there anyone that comes to mind other than other than him? Because there is an emotional connection here, right? That's that's part of the but you draw need for one. Liverpool You need fans. one and I know Liverpool fans and the club are often scoffed at by outsiders for having that or yeah, the like need me to with do my it. intro. But you know Yeah, no but like I've I've got a son who's a Chelsea fan, and he laughed. He laughed at the at Klopp. This is a revelation. The, the, Klopp, the Klopp news. Yeah, how did you like that? Yeah, how, yeah, I have mentioned there? it before. You just don't listen very carefully. <laughs> and he laughed at the Klopp news, but but he said, ah, you see, at Chelsea, we don't allow ourselves to get attached to managers because we sack them at least every two years. <laughs> and so more fool you for having these long Yeah, I mean, it's a, certainly a take on Chelsea's tactics with managers, <laughs> that's for sure. Get him on, why not? I know, yeah. Um, but I mean, I want to come to you know keep talking about some names. Tony, are there any other names in the frame? No, or- no, no. It's very hard to. I mean, Alonso's been very shrewd. If you take if you take his record of since he came out of football, and, and, he, and you know he's only stripes. It's not just a guy that's been given a job in Bayer Leverkusen. Hmm. He was meant to have you know turned down jobs even before Bayer Leverkusen. I'm pretty sure his his dad was a coach as well. You know, he's sort of got that DNA of coaching in him. Mm. And I've seen Bayern a few times, Bayer Leverkusen play, and they normally play a 3-4-2-1. And it is very, very based on aggressive football. Because the last thing I want is a manager that's quite pragmatic because the club is set up to be a very aggressive style. That's the way they play. Uh, And I'd like to see that again. I mean, I always... I always look at Brighton in some bizarre way. It's not only their recruitment of players, but their recruitment of managers, of how well they've you know, transformed into something quite quickly. Well, That's speaking even... of Brighton, Roberto De Zerbi, not a contender well, he's, for you. I, I just think he's even too hyper for Liverpool. I, 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 <laughs> Surely not. No, I, 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 there's a part, I mean, don't get me wrong. Watching Brighton and what's happened there and how he's developed the club, he's, he's been really you know, eye-opening how, how good it's been. Um, but I do feel that a bit like Alisson, is that Alonso, who's a very pragmatic guy in the way he's always handled everything, and I think he could take Liverpool and 
feel very at ease very quickly. Mm. I mean, it's a very exciting challenge. It was something I made my point in the paper. It's like, it's really hard to digest Klopp because Klopp's walked away from, which from Liverpool's fans' eyes, is a very exciting period. Mm. It's like, wow, we've got all this with young lads coming through. You know, watching Brady yesterday, and you know, uh, uh, it's just a number, a number of them that you just feel there's going to be more of Liverpool shining in different ways in the next couple of years. That is where it's an interesting one, isn't it, Gregor, in terms of you thinking about the other um, big managers that left after a long time. Ferguson, it felt like he got absolutely everything out of that final squad and then Moyes came in and felt like people were maybe ageing and on their way out. Other other managers then. Come on, give, you, you've got to give us another one. You've got to give us some other contenders. Ange Postacoglu, he's a secret Liverpool fan. Or think, not so secret. I don't think he's going to make that move. Thomas Frank? No. No? Why? I think with you know, I think Thomas Frank's interesting in that he, with with greater resources his football could change, but I don't think it's, it, it's You don't the think right he'd manage. make Tony Cascarino happy enough. I don't think I don't think that would be a good follow on mm. from Jurgen Klopp to Thomas Frank. No. I, I, as I say, I would, I would like to see him at some point in the future get a, an opportunity where he has bigger resources and you're not the sort of underdog all the time. And, and actually, the Brentford played a lot better football in the Championship. I, I say better, that's the wrong word. A lot more sort of expansive and, you know, mm. you were the main sort of, they were the main sort of protagonist against most teams. He's adapted well to start. He has. He's done, they've done what yeah. they have, they've had to do to be a fit and effective, yeah. very hard to play against team in the Premier League. Yeah. But no, I don't think that's... that's so you don't think with a load of exciting young attacking <coughs> talent he could adapt again? Maybe, but I still think, I think it would be a, an enormous jump mm. for both parties. What about De Zerbi then? De Zerbi, like, football-wise, I think it would be thrilling. But I kind of agree with Tony. There's something about his personality and he's sort mm. of like, I don't know, slightly like Machiavellian, like, brooding, dark. He's, he's, he's like... Jürgen. He's a force he's like of nature. Mourinho on no, a bad it's, day. It's like, yeah, it's, it's it gets really, really. He, yeah, there's rank. something about him. He's kind of you know he's had a few, few uh, suspensions and watched such terrible games from the stands and like I don't know. I just feel like that would be amplified times a million mm. if he went to Liverpool and it could be an issue. But it's football, absolutely. The thing about Alonso though, like it's incredible about that he's been a manager in first team football for eighteen months. Like and he's he's the one that everyone's seeing is the shoe in. Mm. It says so much about timing. Martin Samuel wrote about this in his column, and it's an like, it's a fairly obvious thing to say. But Steven Gerrard, if this had happened a few years back, yeah, he would, he would be getting pushed towards it. So timing is everything, and it's flavour of the month, isn't it? You can become it's flavor not, of the month. That is not a fair comparison because what Alonso has achieved in Germany. Steam Gerrard has not achieved anywhere. You could have said that if, he if, when he left yeah. Rangers. Scotland, when he maybe. left Rangers, listen, that's that's very condescending to the job he did. He he yeah. he. You ended Celtic's opportunity to to, to win a historic tenth title, title in a row. That was an enormous feat, like an, a huge pressure, bigger pressure than anything that uh, Alonso's facing here. Absolutely, there's no there's no conversation to be had there. So he would have been in this conversation. You have to admit, we have to all admit, Gerard would have been in this conversation if this job had come up a couple mm. of years before. Well, he still if he hadn't had Aston Villa experience well I, I, can I just add on that so timing it's a is really important. interesting point and it's one that I thought about over the weekend on Steven Gerrard is that you know all managers will generally fail you know somewhere along the line and that failure can make you a better manager the mistakes you made along the way and if you're just going to go down the road of we're going to go well the Villa thing ended badly and look at what's happened with Unai Emery you know I'd like to think that Gerrard will bounce back in some way Going to Saudi Arabia doesn't help him. Absolutely. Abs- you know, it is for, feeling like, well, you're just going there for to be working, basically, and no more. 
Um, it's not basing yourself having a great CV in management. And yes, it could have gone wrong at Villa, but you bounce back somewhere else. He hasn't chose that option. But you're right. Uh, Gerard's an interesting one to me as well. I did, I did think long and hard because I did feel that failure, should we just throw the kitchen sink at people who fail? Also, like the 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 idea of them having to have some attachment to the club is complete nonsense. Like it's a bonus with Alonso, but what he's doing with that that club and what he's done there is the is the most most enticing thing. Mm-hmm. They, it would be like they should never try and whatever they do, they should never try and replace Klopp. They should never try and stick to the same sort of principles about you know high pressing heavy metal football. It's impossible to re- it's impossible to like replicate that. And Alonso's very different. They play the most short passes in, of any team in Europe's top five leagues. They're like they're more like Brighton. They're like popping up really close yeah. in midfield little triangles, and then and then they. But they play forward. a very high tempo. But clearly, they're very well coached. Yeah. It was interesting to read Johnny Northcross' piece in the Sunday Times talking about how Liverpool will choose this, make this decision. Sorry, using a lot of data-driven um, metrics. To... I don't really know what that means. Well, no, but I mean, surely it means based on what the squad they have and the type of football they want to play and what their managers can bring in. Some of the things you've just been talking about, how Thomas Frank maybe doesn't match up, maybe De Zerbi does on the pitch. But what I was going to come to was linking it to um, the fact that a lot of the play- um, coaching staff are leaving as well. So this does feel like a kind of end of an era. Mm. And, and as behind Tony the scenes. Said, a start, yes, behind the scenes as well. There's been a lot of churn in the last couple of years, and even the interim you know, sporting director who came in and helped, who was yeah. a you know, close friend of, of uh, Jurgen Klopp, he's leaving too. So... This is a big moment for yeah. the club, and we have seen other big clubs, <coughs> Manchester United, mm. you know, really struggling. Get to, it wrong. Really yeah. struggling when a huge figure in their history moves on. When we're talking about big figures, Virgil Van Dijk talking about whether he doesn't know whether he's part of the next generation um, of Liverpool. Maybe that's just uh, please come and give me a new contract. Who knows? But Alison, how do you feel about the that idea that it's not just Klopp; it's bigger than Klopp, that, and that. You know, to counter that, as Tony said, you've got an incredible, incredible um, set of young players coming through, um, Bradley and the like. How do you feel about that idea that Van Dyke and other players would also maybe leave in the next year or so alongside Klopp? No, 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 that's not allowed. No, <laughs> too much to take. <laughs> well, well, I don't, mm, I don't see the logic in that either. Um, Clean slate, Alonso and the kids taking on the world. <laughs> Clean. Uh, no, no. Uh, any manager who you interview who c- goes in and says, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm quite interested, but I'd obviously not want to work with Virgil Van Dijk." You would get, you'd shove him out the room. I mean, that's ridiculous. You would go there, delighted you had Virgil Van Dijk, who not only is we, no need for me to tell you what an amazing defender <coughs> and the impact he had on Liverpool was. But you can see the the way the way he was in the game yesterday with the youngsters. He was very tactile with them, very encouraging to them. He has a presence on the pitch. He, he sort of half coaches when he's, um, you know, on the sideline as a substitute. He is like you want any club, one of the more senior players, to be part of the scene and enjoying the fact that he's seeing players he's on the training pitch with get chances in the first team. You you get everything with someone like Virgil it's slightly childish to suggest that Mm. he'd be so part of the Klopp era that as the new manager you couldn't handle him if you couldn't then you shouldn't be in the job I think think there is a a kind of a question mark about whether Klopp's departure unmoors some of the big stars of his Mm. era just ever so slightly 
Like even even I don't know even Trent. Like what you know suddenly you just go, there is another world out there. This guy who's brought me through being the biggest biggest figure in my professional career is leaving. Like you would want you'd want the transition to be smooth. Otherwise those th- those thoughts would undoubtedly enter someone's head. Yeah. See, there is a there could <coughs> always be one. <clears throat> It could be one player, whether it's Mo Salah that could leave, whether it's Van Dyke or whether, like, like Gregor said, Trent. Um, very unlikely. I mean, if you take Arsene Wenger when he walked in at Arsenal, he kept nearly all the back four, all ageing, gave them all new contracts, felt that he couldn't get defenders better than what he'd already got and they, they'd done an admirable job and probably played their best football ever under him. So I'd, I wouldn't want to walk into a football club and go, by the way, I think I might get Virgil out. It's not the idea that maybe the manager would get rid of him, but maybe more the, hi- maybe the, the club bigger, hierarchy yeah, are looking yeah. at it in the bigger you might picture. Get an offer, you, you know. Oh, I'm, I've got a choice here, either to move on Virgil van Dijk or give him a massive new contract and when maybe we only want to keep him for a year. That's yeah. sometimes yeah, the conversations I know. I, look, that have to be had. You're, you're juggling, you're spinning plates, aren't you? And how, first of all, how hungry, how much do you see that the player really wants to stay as well? Yeah. You know, if a player comes to you and he wants to, literally the whole club uh, on, in his contract and giving him everything... You know, you you got to be careful. Yeah. You've got to go. How much do you want to play for us? Yeah. Um, and I, I wouldn't want to be going into a door and thinking, oh, oh maybe him. I could let him go too easily. I, I think you've got to keep guys that have won things and well respected within the dressing room, been captain. You know, just played a huge part. It's still at an age where you know I think Virgil could play easy another three years. Yeah. So no, I wouldn't. He's not. He's not. You know that age of Jordan Henderson or <clears throat> James Milner that you might have to make that call. Um, so I, I think you've got to be really pragmatic about too much change too quickly. Yeah. Well, it's something we will undoubtedly talk about for the rest of the season, I'm sure. But I just wanted to finish on one debate that before Jurgen Klopp came along on the game podcast, there was Darwin Nunes and the great Robertson v Clark argument that's been raging over the last few weeks. Gregor, don't shake your head. I'm only bringing it up because it's what the listeners want. Tony McMullen <laughs> has been in touch with a subject line email. Nunes, Nunes, Nunes. OK, wonder what camp he's in. He scored again. <laughs> but I'm not going to ask you and I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to talk to the striker in the room. Tony... <laughs> Gregor and I have been debating whether Darwin Nunes has either still got a lot more to offer, a lot more to show, needs to score more regularly, or he's actually showing that he's quite a complete modern centre-forward. Well, he's not complete. Right, I so mean, you're on Gregor's team. I mean, brilliant. what? what? <laughs> no, no. I, Tom, me and you have had this conversation about Darwin Nunes. I remember doing a piece about it. If mm. Liverpool are going to achieve some of the goals that are out there before the end of the season, he has to contribute with goals as well. Of course you're seeing an incredible striker. I mean, his work rate is sensational. He covers every blade of, blade of grass on the pitch. He's got qualities with his pace and his ability to be quite direct, but he has to be clinical. And if he achieves that, then Liverpool can win way more because he is a big part of the jigsaw for me with Liverpool, and I really like him. But my whole, my whole idea around him is Nunes has to deliver like we all do. We look at the stats and numbers. He'll have to come away with... You know, he's probably going to have to get between 8 and 10 goals before the end of the season for Liverpool, to really for them to have a chance of winning the title, because there are other players that might not score so regular. Another 10 goals for Darwin. Come on, you can do it, mate. And he can, he can Proven do it. wrong. Proven wrong. Um, we're going to have to move on. There's lots still to talk about this weekend. Um, and I wanted to talk about a far more serious story, which is the incidents at West Brom against Wolves. Um, Charlotte Dunker was there and she's reporting on the Times website about the six arrests that were made and four people requiring medical attention when fighting broke out in the stands. This followed the day after a fan had been uh, has been charged after running onto the pitch to chase referee Craig Hicks during Port Vale against Portsmouth in League One. Um, 
I don't, I don't really know what to make of all of this other than to say that it's pretty deplorable behaviour, of course. Um, is there anything that the authorities, that football managing these situations can be doing, or is it simply a case of these are the football fans that we don't want to be part of the game? Alison? Well, we don't. I don't think we know exactly what happened. It seems to be a combination of there might have been Wolves fans sat where they shouldn't have been sat and the subs, Wolves subs being close to West Brom fans when the second goal went in and the fans took objection to the subs celebrating. It's I think it's virtually impossible, virtually impossible to stop someone who isn't a fan sitting with the fans because of just, I mean, it just is. We don't, we don't live in a police state. Hmm. Um, I mean, there are, some clubs do do passport checks and stuff, but I mean, your passport doesn't tell you who you support. No. You know, it doesn't have that. Maybe it should. In fact, usually when I go through customs um, and have to speak to someone, <laughs> they will say, who do you support? Strange, isn't it? Because my passport says born in Liverpool and then they want to talk about Liverpool. Because I don't think we've spoken about Liverpool no. enough, actually. You've done that we've, well. You've managed to bring gone, it back. We've gone, we've gone away. But um, so I think, I think, I think, it's, I think it's, it would be tough to, to say, oh, this is, you know, this is all the Albion's fault. They don't know how to run a, mm. a big game anymore. Because uh, it was a big game and, and everyone's, Everyone's decided this happened because it's the first time in 12 years they've had Wolves there with the fans there and it just got hyped up. People were, you know, it is a, it is one of those derbies where they do not like each other and partly, I don't know, maybe when things like this happen, you sort of think there's probably a thousand ingredients that all came together that on another day wouldn't have, but... Um, West Brom were disappointing. That adds to the way the fans feel. They're, they're overexcited and then they realise quite early on we're not, <laughs> not going to knock them out of the cup. And we've been really looking forward to this. And the goal goes in just as the substitutes are in front of them. You've got somebody who makes the noise they shouldn't make in the stand and it just gets out of hand. And, I mean, just goes to show you could have a kick-off at 11.45am. Yeah. 11.45am, which is about policing and alcohol mainly and it still doesn't work i i, I do think oh, I there really. are some fixtures you could kick off at 8am and they would still <laughs> they would still cause trouble there would still be trouble but i i think the only thing i would take from it i mean the i it's it's a strange one because the the, the images that are in the in the in the times today you've got that picture of the, of the fan where his face is completely red with blood you think i haven't seen that for a long time at a football game that is that's quite a shocking uh image which I didn't think I'd see again. And you've got um, Carl Bartley going to get his children, rescuing his little children, because that's where the families of the players were sat. And then he didn't come back out for the match. He, did, he obviously was too upset by the whole thing. Uh, these are not common. And maybe we should just be grateful that it is so uncommon that we're talking about it and that nobody, nobody was seriously hurt. But it's a bad advert and it makes you think back to... Maybe we should be grateful. Maybe we should think, well, golly, you know, this was one-off, strange sort of atmosphere, strange game, and we should be very grateful it doesn't happen that often. I was at the the AZ Altmar West Ham game where you know mm. there was all those famous images of guys clad in black ho hauling down a, a kind of uh, fence to get through, and uh, and again it was in the area where there was players' uh, families and stuff. 
And the thing that struck me from being there was like, no one was going to stop them. Yeah. The stewards, like, they're not, they're, they're a very low paid kind of, just get men and women off the street. Often either, ve- often either quite young people or quite, quite old yeah, people. Yeah, done it for well. 30 years yeah, or whatever. It's like, you know. so I've, I've no complaints that they, they no. didn't want to try and get in the way here. Even the police were like, kind of just trying to talk them down instead of actually, you know, intervening. But, Unless you're going to have like huge police presence at, at games like like these, and there was a fairly big presence, yeah. there's not much you can do. The thing you've got to do is try and you know, identify people and, and make sure they're banned. Yeah. E- even that can be a problem, though, with the presence of the police, because sometimes the police, as they've done in quite often abroad, um, go too far. Yeah. And, you know, batons come out. I can remember playing in Turkey, an international game in Ireland, and it... Spilled onto the pitch after the game ended, and it was I, I was getting waxed, and police police were letting fans just literally go full full out. Yeah, the port, the port, sorry, just the Portville game is very different, and yeah, it's very it's going to be hard to stop one. Yeah, one a random indi- one individual going mm. on the pitch, and that's a broader, I think, a broader conversation about. That's a moron, isn't it? Yeah, but it's moron. also a broader sort of thing about the discourse around officiating and referees, and mm. and you know. It's omnipresence in in our in our debate all the time now, and someone I think this is bound to happen. What people targeting referees? Yeah, because of the conversations that we have on this podcast and that everyone, everyone has about everyone. Refereeing. It's been it's been amplified, you know, hugely since since the advent of R. Mm. It's like and but what can you do with a mindset of an idiot? You know, if you you said about there at Port Vale, it's a moron who's got on the game and decide on the pitch and decides to chase the referee. You're talking about an individual. There is very hard to go go and get that lone raider who decides to go out yeah. and do a daft thing. You no. know, it's a half empty stadium, so he's got the choice. The fan can will probably walk of you know twenty yards that way, fifty yards down there, decide what what bit of the pitch can I get on where there's no stewards, or I could get on the blind side of one. Oh no, I'll walk down there. They've got their face you know, looking out on the pitch. I can jump on the pitch there. You know, it's an empty stadium at Port Vale. So it was quite easy for him to do it, obviously. Yeah, yeah well, I'm saying is that the, the, the whole conversation, I completely agree. There's nothing you can do to stop him, but I'm talking about the kind of, and I'm not justifying it in any way, but no. the, the reasons, we're also seeing this across Europe now. Like we also, was it in, was it in well, Turkey? France has had loads of problems in, yeah. in the last few years. Uh, there's like, there's, the, I think the police were called in Spain the other the other day about about VAR. It was like, there was like it's it's across Europe. Mm, this is yeah. the officiating of football is suddenly like there's more anger. And, yeah. And this I think this is a sort of manifestation. Just, just of to finish on a potentially more constructive point, because as Tony says, we can't necessarily account for these people who that no. we don't agree with their actions. But when it comes back to being a player, Tony, you know, you mentioned before about a Rangers Celtic derby yeah. and playing in big games. As a player in those big games in hostile environments and in hostile atmospheres, did you ever feel a responsibility as a player? Because you you know you love love getting the fans on side. You're there yeah, to entertain, yeah. but also there to make them happy. And so Alison's talking about the Wolves players. You know they want to win a derby for their fans. But did you ever feel a responsibility to just not not dial it up too much in big games ever? Well, um, yeah. Well, I played Celtic Rangers at Ibrox and scored in the game and. Was very conscious of not running in front of the Rangers fans. Yeah, uh, I was straight in front of the Celtic fans, and and knowing that you know you got, surely you got to be, be thinking what well, you can't entice. I mean, it, even if you do, and you're getting stick, because some people say, "Ah, oh, they give me stick all through the game, and I'm going to rub it and give them the two fingers or whatever." You know, I I just feel like you got to be responsible mm. yourself. You know, and you can easily incite a problem in a stadium if you really want to. Yeah, as a player. 
You know, there's been many a cases when players who have done done things. I mean, I mean, remember with Pat, Patrice Evra in France, literally going and jumping in the stands. Yeah. You know, you could really call that by all running to the other end. To exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know, you could easily do that, and and people will go, oh, yeah. you know, he shouldn't have done it. Well, yeah. I, Gascoigne playing the flute as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. loads of things that players have done, and, and you can incite trouble. You've got to show some sort of responsibility. Yeah, well, if you've got strong views on football violence and what can be done about it, or maybe to Gregor's point about whether it's our issue with refereeing and the conversation around it, or maybe you've got ideas on who Jurgen Klopp's replacement should be, or maybe you want to get in touch and say that you would have actually preferred 60 minutes of silence after all, you can get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Stick with us, we're talking about George Ellicobi and Marcus Rashford next. 365 day returns. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and I'm joined today by Tony Cascarino, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. When it comes to the FA Cup, thank God for Maidstone, eh? They beat Ipswich on Saturday for another Shock Cup win. But before that match, something far more important happened. Alison Rudd interviewed George Ellicobi and Mick McCarthy side by side. The perfect treble, better than anything that Pep Guardiola or Alex Ferguson achieved. Alison, tell us about the interview. Well, I mean, it worked. It certainly it? worked. And guess, guess which two chaps texted me to ask for another lunch because they know it worked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. superstitious. Yeah. <laughs> let's it. have lunch, let's have lunch, let's have lunch. <laughs> well, this is the strange thing about this this job, because, you know, Alison, you and I chatted about this, and then I was partly thinking, oh, that's great, Maidstone have won, but then I was thinking, we've used our best idea yeah. already. <laughs> Can we just republish the interview? If you haven't checked it out, make sure you go to the Times website and search for George Ellicobi and Mick McCarthy, and you will find it. But, Alison, tell us more about your meeting with the two chaps. They really do love each other, don't they? They do. Well, I mean, it's... Potentially tenuous link, but actually, in having them both together there at lunch together talking, you realised everything that George has done has been influenced by Mick McCarthy, who signed him for Wolves, knowing he wasn't the complete deal that he needed. He physically looked fantastic, but his he he, he was he was spotted playing park football age sixteen. George Ellicott, he wasn't someone who'd gone through an academy. So George helped him to become a more rounded defender and he became a cult hero at Wolverhampton Wanderers for his just his sheer devotion to the cause. He was just so pleased to be signed by Mick McCarthy and would, you know, as he said, run through brick walls for him. Still calls him the gaffer. But 
And he you called know. him the gaffer the whole way through your interview. Yes. He? Even yes. sat opposite him. Yes. Never, <laughs> never once said Mick. He did once say Mick, did he? but it sounded wrong because he called <laughs> him. He called him the gaffer so much. It's one of those. It's just one of those lovely things where a manager does a lot for a young player. I mean, it, a lot because you know George had to live in a hotel for the first twelve weeks when he signed for Wolves, but. Mick McCarthy said, well, you can come to my house for dinner whenever you like. I want to make sure you eat properly. The card, I, I mean, there's lots I couldn't put in the interview because it would have been a novel. But it, the, the car that George Ellicobie bought was on Mick's recommendation. You know, everything he did was because Mick McCarthy told him to do it. And, and Mick, Mick was still absolutely chuffed to be invited to the third round tie against Stevenage because was that was that the fourth round no they're so far into that was the third round yeah so um and as he said you know i must have pissed off a lot of players because i never get invites <laughs> that was a good but, but he, he he came along and found himself he saw in he saw bits of his own coaching in what george was doing and george when he was taking his coaching badges he would phone Mick up and say oh, i don't quite understand what i'm being asked to do on the coaching badge today can you can you explain what they mean? And Mick would explain what it meant. And then he got the job at Maidstone, and he felt he needed to overhaul the team, but he wasn't quite sure how to do it. So he phoned Mick and said, "Mick, what shall I do?" And Mick said, "Just think about what we did at Wolves, and you'll be all right." And he so he said, "Yes, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, gaffer." So he 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 basically got rid of, from what I can tell, he sort of eased out players who weren't fully invested because there are part-timers there and it's that's quite hard as a manager because we've been talking about Jurgen Klopp and what a great manager is or maybe we haven't been talking enough about <laughs> what a great manager but anyway um, but you've got a player who usually you know it's their full-time job it's their dream but if you're playing in the sixth tier you need another job as well you know you need to and so players who don't in George's mind, you know, when on the days their Maidstone players weren't giving everything, he didn't want them at the club. He wanted players. He understood if they have to have second jobs, but when you're at the club, you're at the club and you give it everything. And that's what Mick McCarthy built in his stint at Wolves was that sense of if you have a good camaraderie and everyone really buys into it, you can you can be greater than the sum of your parts and escape relegation, which is what Wolves did under Mick McCarthy and so that's what George has done at Maidstone he's got a team where they might it might not be the best player but it's the player who works hardest and that effort my goodness you could see that at Portman Road because I mean, they should have been exhausted and this is what often happens in the cup competition the club that's much lower down the, the ladder they don't have the energy levels they're just not they don't they're not looked after as well they don't train as hard they don't have the diet they don't have the time they don't have the monitoring they don't have the sports science and they will they will slowly look less fit and that might be why they lose. But Maidstone players, they were going for it. They were throwing themselves on the line. They were they were blocking every ball. They they had energy right to the end because he's got built a team where they all are a little bit like a Mick McCarthy team, where mm-hmm. they all fight for each other. And so there was they these were two football people who have the m- love, respect, adoration of each other. And it was it was a joy to be in that company. It really was. Mm-hmm. See, I, I was going to say, um, it, obviously I played with Mick um, with Republic of Ireland and Mick wouldn't ever go at me for saying this because it's probably a bit like myself, is that Mick should never got the amount of caps he got and shouldn't have played for the clubs he played for at the highest level. And that's unfair, really, because he deserved to because Mick was 
literally, he was never a gifted centre-half that was going to be, you know, shining week in, week out. He took a lot at stick in his career. But, boy, the amount of managers selected him for his character and personality. And that was Mick, in a mm. nutshell. And, they, they, his, you know, George's team was a reflection of that on Saturday. Mm. You know, after 10 minutes, it could have been 2 nil down, 3 nil down. And you just see this team keep going. Yes, the goalkeeper had to be man of the match. Yes, the defenders find themselves at everything. Yes, they had two chances and they took them both. You know, but... And it was a bit like when I was... I spoke to you yesterday, Tom. Didn't I? I said to you, it's like, it was refreshing to see a team play and not get over their ego, get the better of them, think, let's try and knock it. Playing Ipswich, they love to knock it about. And no, we're going to have to literally roll up our sleeves and this is going to be dirty and hard today. And... And I just, I, I, I give them every, you know, applaud the manager. And the, the substitutions, by the way, by the manager. He's put on young lads, because he had no more legs left in his team. He's put on two or three young lads to come on, who look like my youngest kids, <laughs> you know, coming on. And I felt, wow, he's just put on. And I thought, can they hold on? And they did. I was just going to say, the kind of, the, the line that jumped out for me in the interview too, was when Mike McCarthy said about Ellie Kobe, he was sitting right beside him. He wasn't the best player in the world by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but, 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 and then all the things that you're the talk, same, all the but, things yeah, you're talking yeah. about. So it's probably saw saw a bit of himself and yeah, <laughs> and Eli Kobe yeah. too. And it is about this kind of comes back to what Klopp has been about. It's about personality. That's what they, yeah. you could tell they won through on. Hey, look, the goal, the first goal was an absolute beauty. Yeah. The both goals uh, I thought were brilliant. I yeah. mean, w- watching it as a fan of a team in in League One and who have been much lower and have had players of you know questionable yeah. quality, I was watching them both and thought. These are exactly the chances in a cup game where you get put through and you sky it or you scuff it or you hit it straight at the keeper. The and the chance. The composure that both of them showed yeah. in that moment. Because it is a counter-attack where presumably, Tony, in that moment where you're running through, you're going, don't don't mess this up, don't mess this up, don't mess this up. <laughs> well, that and, and the answer to what you just said was... That's what Premier League teams do to lower lower league teams. They punish them, punish them. And we we've just seen the lower league team punish Ipswich with quality taken finishes. Yeah. But you get the you do get the feeling that El, what is kind of dragging Maidstone through here is, is Ella Kobe's personality. Yeah. And that, and how that is reflected in his team. It's about the spirit that they have. And look these were they were great moments, but without the sort of energy and the and the enthusiasm and all those things that 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 Shown through in, in Ali's interview, they, they wouldn't have achieved this. What one little final thing from from Bill's column: the, the an anagram of the winning goal scorer Sam Corn is romances. Oh, <laughs> perfect, Bill. Very good. <laughs> and by the way, just one little thing: they got Yeovil, who were top of the league uh, on the weekend. I'm back in Yeovil because I don't think that I think their energy level is going to suffer for the next game. Outrageous, George! You heard it here first. Prove Tony Cascarino wrong. Well, talking about personalities and characteristics leads me on to talk about Marcus Rashford because he was a glaring admission from Manchester United squad for their win against Newport. A tricky win and well played Newport as well. Although, having said that, editing the Times sports section yesterday after a day that. Was which included a thrilling test win in the cricket for for England against India, a five-setter in the Australian Open final, football violence uh, in the Midlands. I was like, come on, Newport, don't do this to me as well. (laughs) Enough excitement for one day. But no, it was a good old game. Um, But I wanted to talk about Rashford rather than the game and the performances in that game because it's a fascinating storyline that's kind of panning out under Eric Ten Hag and at Manchester United. Marcus Rashford, of course, has done many wonderful, wonderful things off the pitch and away from football in his career already. But it does feel like this is a key turning point, doesn't it, Tony, in mm. terms of where he's going to go from here. Reports that you know he's not happy at the club, 
that he's maybe not turning up on time. He's been fined before um, and left out of the squad for missing training. Um, we believe that he is also suffering from an illness, but he was mm. away from the club, away from training before preparing for this game. How how do you see it at Manchester United? Because he's he's a he's a he's a club legend in some ways, despite only being very young in his career. Well, until we know all the details of actually what happened, and if he did go to Belfast, and if he did stay on a day later than he should have, and you know, until all that's come to a conclusion, it's all I'd say. Look, Don Howe gave me the biggest rollicking I've ever had in my career. Okay, he didn't swear at me once when he was at Chelsea under Glenn Hoddle. And we went to Ireland and I went out. I didn't have a drink. I was injured and I couldn't play, but I went out with the lads. I come back late and Don Howe was at the airport next morning and he come up to me and he went, you okay? And I've gone, yeah, I'm okay. And he went, he said, where's Cascarino? I saw a play against Adams and bowled. Where is he? I said, what do you mean, Don? He said, he said, you and Sheridan gave him a right hand for you. You were really impressive. He said, where's he gone? And then he literally buried me. Mm. He's gone, you've had a few good moves, haven't you? And I went, well, yeah, I had, yeah, Villa, Celtic. Yeah, he went, earn a few quid? I went, yeah, he said, it looks like it. <laughs> and, and and he literally buried me. I mean, I could go on a lot longer. But that's a different career to Marcus Rashford, isn't yes, it? Because Marcus my... never had that. He's, he's no. come through, he's been the superstar. He's been well, the number 10. He's, I, I he's would... often been the bright spark in a tough, tough time for Manchester United. Yeah, look, Marcus, for me, is one that, I, we obviously don't know all the details, so it's always a difficult one to answer. But if he is doing things wrong, he's got to come to terms very quickly. The game will leave him behind. And yes, he might be on a fortune, and yes, they might not be able to get him on the door. But we've seen with other players that if your your career starts to go downhill and you're on the front pages more than the back, which he you know can be at times now, that managers won't accept that. And even if that manager goes before you, you might think there was this idea, and Greg will... You know, allude to this as well that you know a period of time that there's certain players in just rooms that think well I'll, 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 I'll ask the manager mm. and you're, you're saving yourself well you're not really you're just de- delaying the inevitable that you are a problem as well and if Marcus has done things wrong he's got to own it and he's got to come clean on it and he's got to change it because there was a period two years ago that he had a lot going on in his life at that time where people were making that accusation of the Marcus Rashford of the 17 year old scored and played brilliantly and looked like the the guy that's going to get 20, 30 goals a season for Man United on a regular basis. Marcus has only achieved that in, I think, what, eight years? He's he's got around 20 plus, twice, I think I think it is. And he's had some really poor seasons in there as well. So he's not the superstar. I mean, Marcus is 25 now. He's six. He's, well, 26. So, you know, he's not a kid. Mm. So it's, it, I just always, like, I was always slightly... Weary to jump to, as Tony's saying, like at the outset, to jump to any conclusions really when you don't know what's going on in someone's life, basically. Mm, yeah. And clearly, he's make he's made a couple of unwise decisions. I mean, they're not like, you know, egregious, <laughs> you know, wrongs he's committed. Uh, he's just, you know, he went out after the the derby. I think it was his birthday. It was his birthday. It was his yeah. birthday, you know. But. It was a, it was a, it, it left him open to, yeah, of th- to the sort of publicity he wouldn't want, and this again, you know, I think he was going over to visit a friend who used to play with at Man United, yeah. plays for Alarm now, uh, and again, it, you know, as you say, we we think he was ill. It's easy to doubt that, but yeah. uh, in terms, who knows? I just, I think, I think we can all say that we probably all agree that Marcus Rashford 
seems like a good guy. Yeah. Um, oh well, that was that was exactly what I said at the start. But I think it's more some of those off-field things linked to then the on-field thing because then to bring it back to football, thinking about what we're heading towards this year with the Euros, if if you're Gareth Southgate picking your England squad in terms of you know any someone who that wants people to be completely invested and not to be going through difficult times, would he get in your England squad if you named it tomorrow, Alison? Well, no, but you wouldn't do it. You'd do it in a careful way. Of course, in no, case, no, sensitive way, etc. But I'm talking just in terms of football, because mm. as Tony said, I've just got up his um, statistics here. Yeah, he scored 30 goals last season in 56 appearances um, in all competitions. And he did actually just nick over 20 twice before, 22 and 21 in back-to-back seasons. But this season, 26 appearances, only four goals. He, he's struggling on the pitch as well, isn't it? That's, that's what I mean. This is a, a, Sometimes he's been doing incredibly brilliant things off the pitch. Sometimes he's been brilliant on it. This season, he's struggling in both areas. And that, when there's a big tournament coming up for England, that makes it difficult, doesn't it? Yeah, but you... I mean, one theory could be you know, he's been heavily PR-managed as a youngster. Maybe this is his way of just breaking free of the responsibility and the weight of having a certain image. You know, I actually wouldn't, wouldn't mind a bit of life or make my own decisions occasionally and it's just not he's just not taking the right decisions but I don't know if you can separate it to on and off the pitch because when he's when the cameras pan to him when he's been a sub or even when he's been playing he doesn't look like Marcus Rashford anymore Hmm. he looks slightly distracted or uncomfortable or unhappy I mean we we don't know which of those is he doesn't he looks like there's been a change. Yeah. Do we think maybe as well, because of the time that he's been at the club coming through under Louis van Gaal, he's been there for all those managerial mm. ups and downs and he's had certain managers that have backed him, certain managers that have criticised him. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said, you're the best player that we've got. And he shone under him. He played really well for Mourinho at times, but he overplayed him. Do you think there's an element of, you know, I think back to maybe someone in a different, completely different sense, but like Wilfred Zahar at Crystal Palace. I've got a colleague yeah. on the on the sports desk who's always said, as much as I love him, I'd actually quite like him to go and see if he could do it somewhere yeah. else at, a diff- at the top level and get away from all the kind of attachments that he's got here. Do you think there's an aspect of with Rashford and United where it doesn't matter how many new managers come into Manchester United, he's yeah. so stuck in these kind of rhythms and patterns of ups and downs that he needs to get away? Well, one of the attachments is the local lad. Yeah. You know, the local lad Which is, comes where fans it. are brilliant to you because you're a local lad when you start at 17, 18. And then if you have an indifferent period, a local lad can have a problem because he's local all the time. He bumps into people. more from you always. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. All I, all I see is, in my, when I've watched him, there's moments of brilliance and there's a lot of indifference. Um, in his, especially this season, has he got qualities? Yeah, he's got bundles of qualities. He really has. Um, it's hard to know because... The personal side of you know, I was involved. Well, both of us were involved in football, and you know, things that happen to you off the off the field can sometimes affect you. Sometimes it can be relationship problems. You know, I was certainly at that place. If I said to you know, my my first without getting too serious, my first divorce started in in Glasgow. Mm. That's where it started. That's where the problems initially started, and I played really poorly on the pitch. Um, <laughs> no fans going to care about that. Are they? No. And like for some of Marcus's problems, fans won't care. If you're playing poorly, that's the that's the, the start and the end of it. Yeah, look, I, I just say that actually, I thought he played really well against Spurs in his last game. Yeah. He scored. Like he started to look like probably the, probably the best I've seen him this season. 
Um, but uh, fundamentally, I agree with what Tony's saying there. I think, like, uh, don't don't rush the judge. Yeah. Well, a fit and firing Marcus Rashford can only be a good thing for England this summer, so let's hope he can get back to some form. But speaking of fit and firing, João Pedro, the Brighton forward. Now I'm going to tell you about a little insight into the kind of editing procedures that happened at the weekend. All our hard-working reporters like these guys go off and cover their matches, and then they ring in or email in to us on the desk and say, so these are the ideas for what I want to cover. And for the last few Brighton matches, the reporters have all been different, and they've all come on and said, Roberto De Zerbi has said that João Pedro is going to be the next superstar off cab off the rank at Brighton, and he's off for a big money move. And I'm thinking, give it a rest, Roberto. We've done that once. We need, we need, a, we need a different idea. But what it made me think was that as part of that Brighton model, the manager is clearly happy to t- talk up this young player mm. who they've only they've only signed not that long ago, but is playing very well. Mm. And so I wanted to ask what you all thought of him as a player. Do you think he's got that capability to be the next seventy million plus departure from Brighton to a top club? Seventy million? You're having a laugh, aren't you? Well, they're Brighton. good at negotiation, well, aren't they? If they value, <laughs> have you have you value Ferguson or the so-called rumours of over a hundred million or one hundred and ten million from Chelsea? Pedro's two years older. He's 21. 20, for, 22. 22. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just 22. Yeah. Okay. He's a couple of years older. And the transition from Watford to here is... I mean, I, I actually said to a fellow pro the other day, I said, I find it hard to sort of... Who he's like. You know, when you all, we all do with players, we all go, God, he's a bit like Henri, or he's a bit like this, <laughs> or he's a bit like that. I look at him and I think, I don't really know who he's like. He's got a bit of everybody. Maybe a bit of Tevez in his, the way he sort of plays in number of positions up front. But Te- Tevez was t- tenacious and, and I don't quite see that with him. He's a hot, I mean, look, his movement is exceptional. So are you saying, by the way, just to come back to your shock <laughs> at my 70 million, too much or too little? Brighton won't take that. No chance. Tony Bloomer, Brighton taking 70 million. <laughs> you have a laugh. He's probably said to the club already, that's 130, 150. What, did buy him for 20? Thirty, I think it's thirty. I mean, did you see his little touch around the corner for yeah. that for, for that penalty in between two players outside the right boot? That was just delicious. But this um, is what I mean. This is he has re- got those moments of like real like top level, you know, quality and technique. Some players slightly fly under the radar a little bit in terms of the hype and stuff, and I don't feel like he's necessarily a player we've talked about. But there must be a reason Roberto Zerbi is telling our reporters every bloody weekend to talk about João Pedro. <laughs> well. Uh, I suppose it doesn't do them any harm, like when he's if if they are going to get interest and if they are going to, you know, inflate his price, inflate his ego as well, mm. maybe a little bit. Maybe that's the type of player he is. You have to say that I think uh, I think I read in Bill's column actually this morning that of his, of his eighteen <laughs> of, of his eighteen goals this season, ten are penalties. Yeah. So he's he's been helped by that a lot, and he's scored them all. He scored nine out of nine, I think. And well, they sorry. keep going the wrong way, the goalkeepers, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But. It, it, I, I agree with Tony. I kind of it's hard to place him. Hmm. Like, but if he's if he's posting numbers like this and he does for the for the rest of the season, then there will be interest, I'm sure. Alison. Yeah. Well, you sort of wonder what is the model really? At, uh, what's at the heart of it? Because they they spent a lot relatively for them. They spent a lot on him. They got their business done early for this season, hmm. and you sort of wonder. It's if, the record. Yeah, yeah. You sort of wonder if that Deserby was told, well, we're spending this money, but do you think he's someone? We're not spending this money on a finished article. We're spending this money on someone we still think has 18 steps yet to go. And Deserbi's partly why he's bigging him up is he's just reminding people he's he's improving under us. We didn't we didn't just buy a good striker who stayed a good striker. We've bought someone who has and slotted into the system really well because that was a doubt, wasn't it? You go from Watford 
to Brighton, they're very different. And you and think Ferguson's going to play too, you think? You get, you know, yeah, is he well, going to play all well, the time? You know, he can't I don't think play people the thought, I don't think people expected him to be this efficient and to dovetail so well. The only thing I would say that just kind of crossed my mind, having been at quite a few of his press conferences you know, after games and stuff, is he is prone to picking. Like he's, he's spoken so highly of Ferguson, saying he can be one of the top strikers in Europe and stuff. I think he maybe is prone to trying yeah. to boost mm. the player's ego. A young player who's doing well wants to give them confidence that sort of thing he, he he does that all the time about Ferguson he says there's things he's got to work on he's got to he's do this about Gilmore hasn't he in midfield just like how brilliant he's done for him yeah yeah well we will see whether Brighton and João Pedro can keep scoring the goals and see if Roberto De Zerbi can come up with an interesting line to talk about after his match against Luton uh, on Tuesday but I wanted to talk about one other match in this midweek set of fixtures and that is Burnley's visit to Manchester City Gregor you've written a piece that's on the Times website now about Vincent Company and Burnley and how maybe, just maybe, they've been listening to Alison Rudd on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we remember in the opening, in our kind of preview, you were, you were one of the things that stood out from you, you were saying was that kind of how Burnley's commitment, the kind of dogmatic uh, approach to the, their style of play and their company was kind of, that was your biggest fear for them. And it has kind of turned out to be true, isn't it? They've mm. seen how many errors they've they've made the most errors leading to shots and goals in the Premier League Like there was a period where almost every week you would see them trying to play out from the back and play a loose pass or whatever and be, be punished and I think we've, we've kind of finally seen in the last month or so that they've started to tailor the game a little bit, he's changed a 4-4-2 mm. to be more compact out of possession they're still shipping goals from set pieces and the odd mistake which is undermining that but they're being a wee bit more hard to beat Um and I think, and also James Trafford, there's a thing that uh, Hamza helped point out to me that James Trafford is, who was you know, a young goalkeeper brought in in no small part to because of how, how good he is with the ball at his feet, is now punting every goal kick long. And, and so I think finally we're seeing Burnley tailor their approach a little bit. And which is, as they're going back to City, uh, you know, I, I opened this piece by saying, the last time they went was in the FA Cup quarter final, if you might, if you remember, mm. in March. That was company's first, you know, return to the to the Etihad as a manager, and the conversation was like he's again about timing. He's someone who could replace Pep. This was and people yeah. were laughing when they, when that was said. You know, it was like and Pep, Pep said it as well. Pep said it, yeah. Pep said it. It's written in the stars. So you know, clearly no one's thinking that now yeah. <laughs> after this season they've had in the Premier League. Um, but that day, you, you got a glimpse of her, their sort of approach in that they went, they man marched City all over the pitch. A championship team went to the Etihad and went toe to toe with the City. And that, you know, some, some of us might think that was foolish, but that was a kind of got beat five a glimpse. Five nil? Six nil. Six nil. That was a glimpse of what their season has been like, and it's taken them so long. The question is now is it too late? It See, too there's, late? No, there's no f- way of actually playing the game that, you know, we should ignore. You know, there's. You've got to adapt to what other teams do. And if you come up... I mean, I, I mean, like watching last week, Middlesbrough playing Chelsea and thinking, no, stop, stop what you're doing. <laughs> that is gonna, you're going to get buried in this game. And it was from the very opening minutes of the game that they were trying to overplay Middlesbrough. This is the, sec- the second leg at Yeah, Stanford second leg Bridge. at Stamford Bridge mm. in the League Cup. And then likewise with Swansea. You know, they tried it and Bournemouth just literally obliterated them. And it was... Look, there's it's good. A, it's a fascinating thing that's like a common theme now in, an obsession. in, in football. Is that you know there's a yeah, but we also at the same in the same breath we laud Ange Postecoglou 
for, or certainly a lot of people do, for sticking to his guns, even if you've got two, two, men, two men being sent off yeah. and playing nine men against Chelsea and still standing the halfway line. You know, we laud people who have, who have got these sort of dogmatic... What? Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like these kind of big personality managers who take over at big clubs and then come out and moan, you know, when other teams come and maybe park the bus. I'm trying to think of a manager who maybe fits that bill. Oh, there's a German bloke on his way out. Anyway, I can't, I can't quite think who he is. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Tony Cascarino, thank you very much for joining me. We'll be back on Thursday to talk about all those Premier League games. See you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.